don't remember learning anything about reconstruction. I remember something about carpetbaggers, maybe in middle school or high school. I'm actually a teacher and I teach a unit on reconstruction from the time right after the Civil War and we continue all the way up to the Civil Rights era. I do that through a lot of primary sources, a lot of government reports and NAACP reports. I first learned about Reconstruction as a college student at UNCG. I was a history major, and one of the courses I took was in Reconstruction. I began to learn about Reconstruction in elementary and middle school and in Tennessee. And back then, the teaching of Reconstruction was that it was well intended, but African Americans did not know how to use their freedom, and they were corrupted and were taken advantage of, and tragically, it ended. Um, studying to be a social studies teacher now, it's really important to me to make sure that the accuracy of Reconstruction is taught to generations after me. So I'm really hoping to do that. Last year's riot at the U.S. Capitol made a lot of Americans believe our democracy is in peril. But from everything to a contested election to white supremacist militias, many historians say we've been here before. What year is giving people historical deja vu? 1877, the end of Reconstruction. That's the period immediately following the Civil War when the promise of racial equity was ripe. Then came the violent backlash. The Reconstruction era is the subject of a new exhibition at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. It's called Make Good the Promises, Reconstruction and Its Legacies. The exhibition features more than 175 objects, 14 media programs, and 300 images from the Reconstruction period and its aftermath. And late last year, we had the opportunity to take a guided tour with Katie Kendrick, one of the exhibition curators at the museum. From the beginning when thinking about what they needed to secure freedom and self-sufficiency, uh, African-Americans' new land was that answer, and you know, definitely in the 19th century. And as people who had worked generations to cultivate land, to make it profitable for other people, they, they did know that, that land was the key to, to economic freedom. And so we look at that story here in this section of the exhibition. So we've got some labor contracts. That was you know, the first time that people were working for wages. And so for negotiating, how do you negotiate a fair compensation for your labor? What are the challenges? And then, of course, what happens in the South, the introduction of free labor is followed very closely to the introduction of another system of unfree labor or forced labor through the convict leasing system. So that's another story that we talk about here in this section. And we've also got this interactive, this is a, a touchscreen interactive called What Would You Plant? And we wanted to give visitors the opportunity to think about if, you know, as newly free families having land, what are the decisions that you make about what you want to plant? You know, do you want to plant cotton to, you know, get a cash crop? Do you want to plant crops that are going to feed your family, feed your livestock. And we based this interactive on a, a real community, Promised Land, which was established in South Carolina. There was a program in South Carolina to distribute land and make it more available to freed people uh, for a short time. And so this community of Promised Land of uh, free farmers actually still exists today. Descendants have held on to the land there. So this interactive kind of allows people to, to kind of put themselves in that position of, of making the choices about how to farm their land. 
The exhibition is open to the public, hence the background noise. And if our tour guide sounds a little muffled, that's because everyone was wearing masks. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. Struggling with work or any of life's roles can lead to a lack of motivation and detachment. Prioritize your mental health by talking with someone. BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist, and it's more affordable than in-person therapy. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash 1A. We're talking about the legacy of Reconstruction, the era immediately after the Civil War. Joining us now is Gregory Carr. He's a professor of Afro-American Studies at Howard University. Professor Carr, welcome back to the program. Uh, Thank you for having me again. Good to hear you. Also with us is Kadata Williams. She's a history professor at Wayne State University. She's also the host of Seizing Freedom, a podcast from Virginia Public Media. Professor Williams, it's good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. So, Professor Carr, let's get some basics out of the way. What are we talking about when we say Reconstruction? Well, it's the attempt to stitch the United States back together after the Civil War in 1865. Um, Although, as Kadada has written and discussed many times, uh, we can probably anchor it even before the end of the Civil War with the Contraband Acts and so forth. So we're talking about 1865 to 1877 as the conventionally accepted dates. But within that 12-year period, uh, the, the real kind of meat of Reconstruction or the attempt to basically, um, some people might say subdue the South, other people might say placate the South, but ultimately weave back together the Union involves the, um, the really, as W. Du Bois would say, among other things, the attempt to integrate into citizenship over 4 million people of African descent who had been enslaved. So between 1865 and 1870, very quickly, you see the passage of uh, federal amendments to the Constitution. And by the way, happy National Freedom Day. They just in February the 1st marks the passage of the 13th Amendment, followed quickly by the 14th and 15th Amendment. So by 1870, you have those amendments in place. You have the states back in the Union uh, on the condition that they ratify those amendments. Uh, You have the assassination of Abraham Lincoln in April 1865, which then leads uh, to Andrew Johnson, who was very sympathetic to the former uh, enslavers in the South. And you have the establishment of the Freedmen's Bureau, uh, which was the huge federal attempt to uh, create spaces where African people, African men particularly, would get the right to vote, uh, secure the ability to make and enforce contracts, and establish schools. And uh, it's a rich history that in some ways becomes really this, the, the founding of the United States of America where enslaved people are concerned, not necessarily 1787 with the federal constitution, but 1865 to 1877 with Reconstruction. Well, Professor Williams, your essay called Legacies of Violence is part of the companion book to the Smithsonian Exhibition. What are you arguing in that essay? What I'm arguing is that the violence that we experience in the present day in 2020 with the killing of George Floyd or even the massacre at Mother Emanuel, that it has a deep history that traces back to Reconstruction. This moment where African-Americans are trying to be free, equal, and secure, and they're experiencing what essentially amounts to a war on freedom, specifically Black people's freedom. And so the 
the essay talks a lot about how they're trying to figure out how to live within this system while also communicating the horrors they're enduring. Professor Williams, I touched on this earlier. A a lot of historians see parallels between the January 6th insurrection and the events of 1877. Talk us through that. I think one of the things that becomes very important to recognize is that African-American freedom after the Civil War was contested. The nation didn't just magically decide that they were going to abolish slavery out of the goodness of their hearts. African-Americans wanted that, to be sure, but that's not what actually happened. And so emancipation comes about in this era that is very contested. And so white Southerners, white conservative Southerners in particular, are very hostile to emancipation. But so are a lot of white, conservat- white conservatives excuse me, in the North and the West. And so all, not just freedom itself, but the fleshing out of what freedom means, African-Americans' right to have rights that are recognized and respected in the Constitution, all of those are contested. And so white conservatives in the South, the former enslaving class, they start attacking Black people and their freedoms almost immediately, while the rest of the nation largely just sort of whistles past the violence or turns their head. There's some action, but not nearly enough to spare the lives of thousands and thousands of Black people from either being killed or having their lives completely turned upside down because of this horrific white terrorist violence. So how do you connect that to the attempted insurrection on January 6th? Well, I connect it because part of what you see in this era during Reconstruction is intensive resistance to Black people voting. And so a lot of the violence percolates around election cycles in the South. And so you see Black people, who Black voters in particular, who are targeted with assassination. They are held hostage in their homes. They are struck down at the polling place. This is done by people who don't believe in American freedom, liberty, justice, and democracy for all. And that's the connection to what we saw happen on January 6th. The people who are participating in that event did not believe or do not believe in American freedom, liberty and justice for all. And their actions reveal that because they are they were protesting or rising up against a more egalitarian and democratic society that people are trying to build. This hour, we're talking about the legacy of Reconstruction, the era immediately after the Civil War. It's the subject of a special exhibition at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. And late last year, we had the opportunity to take a guided tour. Here's one of the curators of the exhibition, Katie Kendrick. The search for family members who had been lost, separated during slavery, was a primary goal for for people coming out of slavery. How do you find, how do you reconnect with people who at times it's been years, decades since you last saw them? One of the ways that people did that is by posting classified ads in newspapers. So for years after the uh, end of the Civil War, there were advertisements posted. What we have here is kind of a recurring feature throughout the exhibition, we call them testimony stations. We wanted to bring the first person accounts from Reconstruction to life. So this video presents actors reading from some of these classified ads. During the year 1849, Thomas Sample carried away from this city as his slaves, our daughter, Polly, and son, George Washington, to the state of Mississippi and subsequently to Texas, and when last heard from, they were in LaGrange, Texas. We will give $100 each for them 
to any person who will assist them or either of them to get to Nashville or get word to us of their whereabouts, if they are alive. Ben and Floor East. Another feature that we have in throughout the exhibition is this theme, looking forward, where we, we want to start making those connections. Um, you know, how does Reconstruction reverberate, and what are the different ways in which it reverberates? And the tradition of family reunions is something that you can really root in this desire to bring your family back together and the importance of connecting with family. So we've got a panel here which has some historical and contemporary photographs of African American family reunions from various decades, the early 20th century to you know the modern time, including a photograph of a family reunion here at this museum. Um, our museum has really become a destination for family reunions uh, since it opened, and during the summertime you can see so many groups of people coming through with their t-shirts, and, and you know, this is a real important place to, uh, to connect with family and to connect to the past. And I want to bring one more voice into the conversation. Joining us now is Millicent short Colomb. She's a research and community engagement associate at Georgetown's Laboratory for Global Performance and Politics. Millicent, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Dan. It's great to be here. Now, the Smithsonian exhibition highlights a few artifacts from your life, Millicent, including college robes from when you were an undergrad at Georgetown. Uh, your ancestors were enslaved and owned by Jes- Jesuits at the university, and you found out just six years ago. How, how did that happen? I was contacted by Richard Cellini of the Georgetown Memory Project, Judy Rifle, his genealogist, Uh, got in contact with me on Facebook asking if I was a descendant of families in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I wrote her back and said, no, 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 these are my families. And I had my begats from my grandmother and my great-grandmother who were actually the same people uh, that the Memory Project was getting in contact with me about. Mm. So I had a very firm oral history in my family that did not connect us to the Jesuits, but connected us to being enslaved, manumitted, and having gone to court to sue our enslavers in Maryland. Mm. Um, So I had a, a firm understanding of who I was as an American. So what went through your mind when you found out about this part of your family's past? Well, I felt a lot of things. Uh, It was an implosion and an explosion at the same time, because even though I had this family history, oral family history, when your enslavers, the enslavers and traffickers of your family are identified, it becomes a different story. It becomes a different narrative in yourself as a person. Here in America, we have always been told, you'll never know who your enslaved people were. We don't have the names, we'll never know. When in fact, that is not true. Hmm. It's not hard finding descendants of enslaved people in America, the hardest thing to do was for somebody to look. 
Mm. Millicent, you enrolled as an undergraduate at Georgetown at the age of 63. This was part of the school's legacy program for the descendants of the people it enslaved. What was it like for you to attend, given your family's history? Um, It was a step and a decision that I made as an adult, because Georgetown didn't really have a legacy program. President DeJoya stood up in front of everybody, students, alumni, the United States, and said, we are going to forever be engaged with this history. When he said that, there was nothing except him saying that. So uh, I had become involved with Georgetown because Georgetown presented itself in my family history at that time. And we have an institution, the Society of Jesus, through its intermediary, that now says we will welcome descendants of the people that we enslaved and trafficked 200, 180 years ago. Send us If they can make the cut, send us your descendants and we'll see what we can do for them. I needed to be a part of what that meant because this is the institution that enslaved, trafficked, and then didn't talk about the enslavement of thousands of people for 200 years, except amongst themselves. Now you're going to tell me to send my grandchildren or my nieces or my nephews or other family members or community members to you? Why should I trust what you say? I'm an adult. I do not think that that was young people's responsibility because young people always are on the front line. So as an adult and a qualified descendant, I made the application and was accepted into the institution. Now, a new report from the nonprofit Zen Education Project found that in 45 out of 50 states, teaching about Reconstruction is partial to non-existent. At the same time, we're seeing tense debates among educators and parents, to be clear, mostly white parents, about subject matter related to race being taught in schools. And I'd love to hear from you first, Professor Carr, in this climate, why do you think Reconstruction is getting left out of school curricula? Well, I think the sentiment, uh, we understand, of course, national identities are fictions. You have to work at them. And what is being threatened, unfortunately, probably, and many of the people who are against CRT, and if you ask them what CRT means, it just translates into whatever you're for, <laughs> I'm against. Uh, I think there's a, there's a feeling of insecurity that we see parallels within Reconstruction. I mean, in the South, uh, you have poor whites in places like Philadelphia, to, to echo what Professor uh, Williams just mentioned, 1871, uh, Octavius Caddo was killed trying to vote in South Philly. You've got Poor whites who feel as if their status is being threatened in a new country for all intents and purposes where they haven't received any material benefit, but the intangible benefit, access to whiteness, is something that uh, Gerald Horn often says, the historian Gerald Horn, it's almost like battle pay for being a buffer between all those black people and the white elites. 
And so there's an insecurity there. There's a feeling of threat. Uh, one year after the end of the Civil War, the Ku Klux Klan is founded in Pulaski, Tennessee, not far from where I was born. And, you know, this is this organization supported by ex-Confederate soldiers, but it is joined along with a lot of other paramilitary formations by white folk who feel like my way of life is being threatened. Never mind, finally, that that way of life that they feel is being threatened never existed in the first place. We're talking about people battling over fictions and they're going to suffer as a result materially rather than trying to form interracial coalitions and truly transform the country. And that's happening now as, as well as in Reconstruction. We got this question from one of you who says, who decides what the proper teaching of the Reconstruction looks like? Professor Williams, your thoughts? I think it varies. When you're thinking about K through 12, you have to sort of recognize the larger infrastructure that's going on there and the mission, which is to sort of like socialize Americans to be good, loyal, patriotic citizens. Um, And so that drives a lot of the thinking in terms of what is taught and not taught. There are history standards. So there are state boards, et cetera, that determine this. But some of the same people who are agitating and you know, decrying what they call critical race theory are some of the same people who have a say in what's on those boards, you know, and, and you know, on their, excuse me, let me put it this way. They're on the board. So they have a significant say over what's taught and not taught. And so there is an investment in not teaching this history of reconstruction or teaching a history of reconstruction that legitimizes white supremacy. We'll be back with more in a moment. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Now let's get back to our conversation about the legacy of Reconstruction, the era immediately after the Civil War. We've talked about some of the failures of Reconstruction, but Professor Carr, in your view, what are some of the major successes of this era? I'll take my cue again from W.B. Du Bois in 1903 in The Souls of Black Folk, which he really expands 30 years later in his book, Black Reconstruction in America. The black institutions, there are two two quick uh, triumphs. One is the black institutions, some of which predate uh, the Civil War, as Carter Woodson writes about, the black church, uh, black black educational institutions who are, of course, getting support from outside the South. A lot of those institutions endure to this day. And uh, of course, the African Methodist Episcopal Church being probably most the best known of the organized black formations, they really use reconstruction to pull together black family, pull together black community, pool their resources and engage in a form of local sovereignty in a way in partnership with the Freedmen's Bureau. As Du Bois says, there are almost a thousand different governments going on at the same time. And then the other one quickly is the uh, is the impact of these newly freed people of African descent on the very structures that they, people are trying to prevent them from participating in. When you read Lerone Bennett or Vincent Harding or any of those early historians who are, well, later historians who are writing about Reconstruction, you know, they say for all intents and purposes, public education in the South is a Negro idea. Black people stand up these by going to the legislatures. And I would say in terms of teaching Reconstruction, looking at those primary documents, students and all of us really, when we read what Robert Elliott and Francis Cardozo, who ends up in DC, the grandfather of Eslanda Good Robeson, Paul Robeson's wife, when we look at what they were passing in those legislation, those very same people who had no chance to read or write, who happened to be white, now get to go to school and then turn around and Jim Crow the very people who passed the laws out of going to the schools. It is, I mean, those are triumphs, even in spite of the barriers they faced. 
We've been talking about Reconstruction as a missed moment in the pursuit of racial equity. And and Melisand, I'm curious to hear from you, especially after your experience going to Georgetown. Where do you think the unfinished work of Reconstruction is most urgent today? Um, Great question. Thank you. Um, I think beyond the experience of going to Georgetown is the reality that I was born a little colored girl in 1954. Um, And the very same energies that compelled people to vote against and actively suppressed in Louisiana, in New Orleans, the first 10 years of my life in segregation were the most formative and solid years of my life because I was in a community of people who built where we were up until that point. And when I was born on April 10th, 1954, my 27-year-old mother, graduate from Spelman College, knew in May when she heard on the radio about Brown versus the Board of Education that my life and the lives of all of us little babies Born in 1954 and 1953, we were going to an experience an America unlike any other. And that this inheritance belongs to us all in an unbroken line of inheritance that is but 246 years old. What Reconstruction has taught me is that the very same forces that were at play in 1877 are at play in 2022. And they are energies to do the same thing. Deprive me and people like me of our rights as legitimate Americans of long standing. (sighs) I'm thinking about my parents, Melisande, as you speak, and my father and mother were born in the late 1930s and early 1940s, respectively. And one of the things that I continue to grapple with is that my parents were born in a country where they were not considered full citizens until they were adults. And when we talk about this history, so often it's talked about as if it was so far in the past and that the impact of this history isn't still shaping America today. Professor Carr, what is at the heart of that disconnect? And and how do we how do we fix it? 
Well, I think we fix it through education, uh, but the it that we have to fix is the, to quote Gil Scott Heron from several decades ago, this country loves nostalgia as long as it can curate it to fit the taste of the people who want to remember. In fact, when in fact, we don't even remember as far back as last week. <laughs> so, so, so the idea then, I think we fix it by digging in and confronting the fact that the roots of what we face structurally in this country really do go back to this moment. And as, as you were talking, Melisande, and then as you were reflecting on that, uh, um, as you were thinking about that, it made me think about my parents, too. You know, like I said, I knew my grandparents. Their parents were born, one, before the end of enslavement, the other right at the beginning of Reconstruction. So this is not ancient history. And, and, and we have to understand that since the 1960s, the second Reconstruction of the 60s, what you really see is, in some ways, Dylan Rodriguez writes about this. He calls it white Reconstruction. In other words, this, this, this response to empowering everyone has been to preserve this notion of whiteness. And that lies at the heart of the unresolved conflict. And so Brown is a response to Plessy. Plessy, you could argue, is really the end of Reconstruction because what the Supreme Court does is almost immediately start attacking the 14th Amendment. They don't protect voter rights as Cruikshank when they took the ballot boxes in Louisiana. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan Acts of 1870, when they started the Department of Justice, they whittle those away by the Civil Rights Acts and say, well, it's state action and private actors can't be touched. That sets up everything from the Southern Negro Youth Conference to the second SNCC, the Student Nonviolence Coordinating Committee. And to this day, that's what those Black Lives Matter young people out in the streets fighting. Either we're all going to be human beings or you're not going to have a country to be a human being in. This is the unresolved work of Reconstruction. Mm. Professor Williams, I'd love to hear from you on this as well. I'll just say, I agree with everything that's been said. And I think that one of the things that is most striking to me as a history professor is how much our young people don't know about this history, including their families, sort of like the way their families are central to this history. So not just what's being taught in school, but what's also not being taught in homes. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's one of the things that's most striking. I feel like we, um, as certain communities, are missing a moment to connect those dots and to help even young people today understand the sort of unbroken line and sometimes the broken line between what's happening now and what happened in the past and how they might be able to draw strength and lessons from the people who came before them about how to fight these fights today. That's Kadata Williams. She's a history professor at Wayne State University and hosted the podcast Seizing Freedom for Virginia Public Media. We also spoke to Gregory Carr. He's a professor of Afro-American studies at Howard University and Millicent Short Colomb. She's a research and community engagement associate at Georgetown's Laboratory for Global Performance and Politics. Professor Carr, Professor Williams, Millicent, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Jen. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Now, the Smithsonian's special exhibition on Reconstruction is on view through August. Today's producer was Catherine Fink. Our podcast is produced by Barb Anguiano. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.